Good morning. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Read the end of Mark 6. Before I do, just want to rehash these last lines we sang from I Hear the Words of Love. My love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows. I think that's true of most of us as we come back Sunday after Sunday from a tough week and uh, uh, whether it's we've been sinned against or we ourselves are the, the sinners. Uh, uh, our love is oft times low. But man, how great that last line. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. And our salvation, our hope, our security is secure and assured in God's love for us in Christ and even in our worst weeks. Uh, that doesn't change the everlasting love of God towards us in Christ. He still loves us with an immutable, unchanging, eternal, divine love. That is, that is just powerfully encouraging, at least to me. Mark 6, verses 30 through the end of the chapter. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Good ministry will do that. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, it's about 3 a.m. in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves 
their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a light into our path and a light into the darkest recesses of our mischievous and sinful hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, use your word to shine upon our hearts so that we might see more clearly your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you do this, Lord, not only for our sanctification individually, but as a church, corporately strengthening us in your word and in Christ, and ultimately using this hour to bring yourself glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen here to this run-on sentence by an author I've come to love. He says, I, you, we were made to be enchanted, enamored, engrossed with God, enthralled, enraptured, and entranced with God, enravished, excited, and enticed by God, astonished, amazed, and awed by God, astounded, absorbed, and agog by God, Beguiled and bedazzled, startled and and staggered, smitten and stunned, stupefied and spellbound, charmed and consumed, thrilled and thunderstruck, obsessed and preoccupied, intrigued and impassioned, overwhelmed and overwrought, gripped and wrapped, enthused and electrified, tantalized, memorized and monopolized, fascinated, captivated and exhilarated by God, intoxicated and infatuated with God. It's a great use of language, which I think is attempting to just scratch the surface of what our walk with God should look like. I wonder, would you say this describes your relationship with Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? Do you give that answer? We're made to worship him, And each one of these verbs, I think, helps to grasp just a a bit of what true worship looks like to be truly in love with Jesus Christ, our God. Have you ever known anybody who's enthralled with a person? I mean, really absorbed with them, but all for the wrong reasons. It usually happens among teenagers who just die over their latest crush. They're entranced with what is just the outward appearance of a person. They're in love with the superficial, media-produced portrayal of that person, not with who the person really is. They, They don't know the real person, and so they're absorbed with them, but just not in the right way. It's good to ask yourself, you know, like a yearly checkup. Is my following of Jesus Christ really just a superficial following? Or is it the real thing? 
Paul commands us to do as much at the end of 2 Corinthians when he writes, Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. I think this passage in Mark helps us to do just that. It's an account, which I've just read, of, of following Jesus Christ, following him in his public ministry. But, but I think it's also an account which is showing us the limits of the crowd's ability to rightly recognize Jesus Christ. They know he's something special. We've seen it for the past couple months as they followed him. He's a special guy. And in a real sense, they are absorbed with him. You see that in verse 33. Many saw and recognized Jesus, thus they ran on foot from all the towns and got there before him. That's crazy. They ran around the lake, the sea, to get to where Jesus was going on foot. It's no different from paparazzi today. They're bedazzled by the amazing ministry of this miracle worker and have to be near him to see what he's going to do next. But here's what makes this passage so helpful for us as we examine ourselves in light of Christ. There is this key repeated phrase, I think, purposely placed throughout the text, highlighting for us how people follow Jesus. We just read the first one in verse 33 where they recognized them and ran to him. But but look at verses 49 and 50. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The disciples, the very men being trained to make Jesus known to a dark and blind world, themselves don't recognize Jesus. They're not aware that it's him. Perhaps they don't fully know him. I think this is also the case when we immediately see the next set of verses, the last story. Look at verses 53 and 54. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. You see, this whole passage is structured around these three stories. The first one and the last story dealing with with the wider population's immediate recognition of Jesus. But then ironically, right there in the middle, we see the very apostles' inability to recognize the own man that they've been following. This theme has been developing actually throughout the Gospel of Mark. Mark is, is showing us this slow process by which the blind and ignorant apostles are progressively made to see more and more being brought by God's grace to believe more and more until finally they really believe after the resurrection when the Spirit wakens their hearts. But likewise, I think we see this theme of of the wider population who who at first, they're they're falling over themselves to, to get near Jesus, but will actually progressively descend more and more into blindness until at the end of the gospel, these very crowds who are running after him from every town will gather and all cry, crucify him. Crucify him. Again, we're forced to ask, what group am I in? One group, though weak and barely able to see, is coming more and more to a real and saving knowledge of Christ. The other group, which seems on fire, they seem very excited, find themselves growing more and more cold and unfamiliar with who Jesus really is. And how about us? 
Am I just on team Jesus? Well, because that's culturally accepted. It's what my parents did. It's what everyone around me has done. You go to church. Or am I following after Christ even if ever so weakly? Because in him alone, I find my deepest heart's satisfaction. The structure of this passage, this this underlying fixture of rightly or wrongly recognizing Jesus is actually being used, I think, to show us who Jesus really is. Because if the crowds are only superficially recognizing Jesus, and if his own closest disciples are at this point missing the picture of who Jesus is, and then the question for us is, who is Jesus? If I'm to examine myself to see whether or not I'm rightly following Jesus, I need to answer the more important question, who is this Jesus? Mark gives us our first big answer think in verses 30 and 31. We read there that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest a while. Now, the apostles have just returned from their first big missionary journey, doing good ministry. They're exhausted. Jesus leads them to take time off, but where? Where does he want them to rest? The text says, to a desolate place. Why should this grab our attention? Well, because he repeats the same word again in verse 32. Look, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place. And if that were not enough, Mark using the power of three to kind of shout at us from the text, pay attention, pay attention, repeats the same word again in verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. He's repeated it three times. This is important, Mark is saying. Another way to translate this is the word wilderness. Jesus has taken the twelve out into the wilderness. I think for any Jewish reader who knew their Old Testament well, this word wilderness carried a punch. It's a loaded word. Who led God's people out into the wilderness in that key Old Testament story? Moses, that's right. Moses led the 12 tribes of Israel out into the wilderness on their way to find rest to the promised land. Moses, the key Old Testament figure whom God used to lead God's people, It seems maybe Mark here is is making this connection between Jesus and Moses. How? Why? Look how Mark continues this thought in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Here's the crowd recognizing Jesus, leading the 12 out into the wilderness. They run out to meet him. And as soon as Jesus arrives and sees this huge crowd waiting for him, Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is not just a throwaway line. Mark is doing something here. He's building up his argument of Jesus in connection with Moses. He's showing us Jesus is the better and more perfect Moses. Let me show you what I mean. Turn quickly uh, back to Numbers 27. Numbers 27. This is one of those books that maybe no one ever reads, but we need to. Uh, Do you guys know that Jesus quoted more out of Deuteronomy and Numbers than any other book in the Bible? should cause us to want to read these books more. Numbers 27. 
Look at verse 15. Can't read what Mark is showing us here without understanding the Old Testament background to all of this. In Numbers 27, verse 15 and 16, we see this. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. What we see here is Moses aware of his impending death, and in light of this, he requests for a new leader to be raised up. It's going to be Joshua. But what kind of leader? Verse 17. One who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd. The point here is that Moses was leading the Israelites like a shepherd, a shepherd of God's people. And Mark is picking up on this and showing us Jesus, a more perfect shepherd than Moses. There's tons of passages throughout the Old Testament that, that, that pick this theme up more and more, but we'll just look at one more. Uh, Ezekiel 34, which Mike read from earlier. Turn quickly to Ezekiel 34. In verses 1 through 10 of Ezekiel 34, God's berating the leaders and pastors of Israel as being motivated by selfish gain. They're bad shepherds, and as such, the Lord turns against them. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the Lord expresses his anger at the leaders and pastors of Israel, the the shepherds, because of their moral failure to feed the people rightly on his word. So he turns against them. But he doesn't turn against the sheep. He's for his sheep. Look what he says in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice." Here, Ezekiel is prophesying in terms that match almost identically what we're reading about in Mark. Prophesying of a time when God himself will shepherd his people on green pastures on the hills of Israel. They're sheep without a shepherd. Here's the wild thing. These people have shepherds, the Pharisees. But Jesus sees them here as wandering sheep without any shepherds. The the failure, the moral failure of the Pharisees leads Jesus to cry out that it's as if there was no shepherd at all. So Mark is not wasting words when back in chapter 6 of Mark, verse 34, he saw the great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And which is why in verse 39 of chapter 6, Jesus himself, stepping into that shepherding role, commands them all to sit down in groups on the green grass and would proceed to feed them and teach them his word. These are all clear allusions 
of God's promise of a coming shepherd, of one better and greater than Moses back in the Old Testament. Of course, we'd be remiss, right, to skip over Psalm 23. The the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So we see Jesus here in Mark 6 preparing a table for his sheep. Jesus doesn't perform this miracle, though, just for the sake of doing a miracle. He never does that. He doesn't do it even just for the sake of feeding the 5,000. He could if he wanted feed it at, fed, that wasn't right, fed everybody uh, uh, like that. Thank you, PG County Schools. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Like all the other miracles, Mark records for us in this gospel uh, uh, this miracle to show us something about himself. I love PG County Schools, by the way. So what is he doing in this miracle of feeding the 5,000? Well, I think he's hearkening back to one of the greatest events in the history and story of Moses, right? Uh, perhaps you remember how Moses led God's people through the wilderness, and they're in the wilderness. There's not much to eat. So, so how did they eat in the wilderness? Well, God, through Moses, feeds them miraculously with manna from heaven. Food was created special every morning to, to feed and nourish these sheep out in the wilderness. And so here, Jesus, in a way that kind of one-ups Moses, says, okay, you, you, you pray to God, and then God, listen to your prayer. I'll pray to God, and as God myself, I'll actually feed them myself, miraculously. 5,000, like that. If you're still not quite convinced that this is what Mark is telling us here, look finally at the next two stories. I think we see the pattern confirmed. Remember how Moses' leading of the people began by God's miraculous control over the Red Sea? Splitting it and leading the 12 tribes of Israel on dry ground through the parted waters? Well, Mark doesn't miss a beat here when he shows us how greater than Moses Jesus really is. We see that he too has control over the waters. Even greater control than Moses. Because, verse 48, Jesus walks on the water. He saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. Here is a shepherd, like Moses indeed, but one who outshines Moses in every way. If you remember back in Exodus and Numbers when Moses led God's people through the wilderness and and then the sheep suffered under the painful attacks of the snakes that bit them and, and some were even dying by the poisonous snake bites. Moses intercedes on their behalf and And by God's instruction, crafts a bronze serpent to be lifted up so that many would would just look at it. And by looking at it, they may, may be made well. Well, here Mark shows us in clear detail how Jesus is even better. Verses 55 and 56. The whole region began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard Jesus was. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Or as John tells us in John 3.14 of this same passage. uh, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. So the people are spiritually wandering. 
whether they're spiritually hungry, spiritually sick, they are in need of a shepherd. And what's the solution? Jesus is that shepherd. God himself who has come among his sheep as that perfect shepherd, the better shepherd than Moses who walks on water to lead his people, who feeds them miraculously in the wilderness, who is the only person his sheep can look to to find healing. This is good news, friends. We don't want to overlook this because it's, it's teaching us about our Lord. It's here. It matters. But why? You might be asking, okay, so what? Jesus is the better Moses. Uh, he's fulfilled the coming uh, of God as shepherd. I want to close here by looking at, I think, five ways at why this matters. Five ways that gives us crucial detail about Jesus Christ as our perfect shepherd. The first way this shows us Jesus Christ in better details is that it shows us Jesus as the divine shepherd. Friends, let's not miss the fact that Jesus is powerfully showing us his divinity here. And Moses didn't feed the people with manna. God fed the people with manna in the wilderness. Moses just prayed for it. But here it's Jesus who's doing the actual miraculous work. He's actually creating, out of nothing, food to be given to people. God does that. Jesus, who is Lord, your divine shepherd, and whom you shall not want. And because he's divine, he, he also really walked on water. This was not, as some unbelieving commentators try and swing it, Jesus walking on a sandbar hidden under the shallow water, thus making it look like he was walking on water. Now, the text tells us he has the ability to step on a body of H2O and not sink down. You know why? Because he's God. We're not meant to read this and figure out the trick and thus prove in in naturalistic ways how it appeared that Jesus fed the 5,000. Oh, they just shared and they're all friends. No, he's God. And he fed 5,000 men. More probably with uh, women and children there out of thin air. We're meant to say, oh, wow. He creates. He's Jesus. He's God. He does whatever he wants. Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. And really, what is there that he who is our divine creator God cannot do? You know, even though he gives pastors to help shepherd this church, something Mike prayed for earlier, that there would be good, morally responsible, helpful shepherds. Jesus is that ultimate shepherd. He is the pastor of this church and every other healthy and good gospel-believing church. There's nothing he cannot do, and he cares perfectly for his sheep. Secondly, this passage is showing us that Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. And we see this throughout the text. Look at verse 34, where Jesus, upon seeing the crowds, is said to have compassion on them. Remember, Jesus is leading the 12 apostles to a desolate place to to actually get away from ministry. Were you surprised by that? He wants to take a kind of retreat of sorts, to be alone and, and, and just breathe. He says, let's go someplace else. But then what happens? He sees them there waiting for them. And he's moved with compassion for these wandering sheep. And so he gathers, gathers them to himself. And, and, he, and he preaches all day long. More ministry on top of already exhausting ministry. 
His compassion moves him to pour out his heart in teaching them many things until the sun goes down. And then on top of that, he feeds the thousands. He gives them a banquet and eats with them. He feeds them spiritually, nourishes them physically, gives them rest. I think we also see his compassion and comfort in verses 45 through 50. After the meal, he sends the 12 across the sea to Bethsaida. And while they're painfully trudging nowhere due to inclement weather, Jesus is alone on the mountain praying. How does that show his compassion? Well, it's not a stretch to guess that that Jesus is actually praying for the disciples at this point, as we see him pray for them in many other of his recorded prayers throughout the Gospels. But, But what a compassionate shepherd who gives himself continually to actually pray, and for them. And Jesus will actually tell them later, before his ascension, that while in heaven, he will continue his ministry by praying for and interceding for them at the Father's right hand. He's concerned for them at the moment by praying for them. And he's concerned for his sheep even now as he intercedes and prays for us. He's a compassionate shepherd who intercedes for us even if you're following him as as a blind sheep ever so weakly. He's compassionate, as Hebrews tells us, as our sympathetic high priest. When Moses was the shepherd over God's people and they messed up, well, Moses brought the law. He brought condemnation. He showed them how unworthy you are, you sinner. Out, out. Now, when Christ, as our better shepherd, brings grace, he brings love and care. He actually holds us up and continues to do so by praying and interceding for us even now, for our growth and perseverance. Thirdly, I think we see Jesus as a providing shepherd. It's significant that Jesus provides a banquet for these people in the wilderness, right? The point shouldn't be missed that that's how God in Christ provides for his people. Those who are gathered to him, those who are his sheep, no matter what the situation is or where you are in life, Jesus is able to provide. And he loves to provide when it seems that nothing can be done. Isn't that like God? He feeds a multitude in the desert and walks to his own on water in the midst of a windstorm. He even makes the wind to cease. There's nothing he cannot do and thus there's nothing that can keep him from providing perfectly for what his sheep need. Our English word provide comes from the Latin vide. And then, uh, which means to see, and then pro for, so provide to see for. It, it, it carries with it this idea not of giving things to people in need, but of actually seeing for people, watching on their behalf. Our English word providence, providence, gets closest to that sense. And so Jesus is a, a providential, providing shepherd, because he's also. God, he, he sees what we can't, and thus he can provide perfectly what he knows we need. He knew the disciples would have an impossible time getting across the sea, but he sends them anyway. He knew there were only five loaves, but he sent the disciples to find out anyway. He knew that many in the crowd would later cry, crucify him, crucify him, but he fed them anyway. He knew that one of his own disciples would go on to betray him, but he kept him around anyway. And in his providence, He works each situation out perfectly. Maybe you're here saying, why now? Why am I here? What is going on? And yet you can trust we have a providentially providing shepherd. 
He knows exactly where you are and he knows exactly how to provide for you. How does that change the way you think about what your needs are? He provides perfectly. Even in those worst of situations where, 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 where death happens in the family, your closest loved one dies. And you can say, because you know Jesus as the the providential providing shepherd, I know you're good, Jesus. And I know that this isn't out of your control and you're providing just perfectly for what I need. I'm reminded now of that uh, prayer in Proverbs, and I forget where it exactly is, but, but it says, right, don't give me too much so that I forget you, Lord, but don't give me too little so that I'm tempted to steal. Just enough which is exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Just enough for today. Provide perfectly, as only you know how to do, Lord Jesus. Fourthly, Jesus is a kingly shepherd. But notice what kind of king he is. It's significant that this passage comes right on the heels of the passage before, which Isaac preached on last week, right? But right on the heels of John the Baptist's martyrdom. King Herod kills John the Baptist. John is beheaded by a wicked and power-hungry king. After a drunken feast of foolishness and sexual sin, And the rest of chapter 6 then shows us the nature and character of the true king of kings and his banquet. Herod has his sumptuous, lavish feast with all the food and drink to gorge and get drunk on. Jesus' meal is... Bread and fish. Simple, yes. But the text tells us in verse verse 42, everyone was satisfied. Herod's feast centered on sin, lust, pride, and murder. Jesus' feast was centered upon his teaching. The word of God preached. Prayers offered to God. King Herod was desperate to be called king and held on to that title in any way, in whichever way he could. Murdered strong-armed to gain that title. But Jesus refuses to be made king. In fact, in John chapter 6, uh, in this same account that John describes, the people try and make him king, and he, he backs away. He says, no, don't make me king. I won't be your king that just gives you stuff. Jesus' kingship would come another way, by going to the cross as a silent lamb. Jesus' kingship consisted first of giving himself to the sick and dying, the diseased and the downtrodden. Jesus' kingship would come by giving himself even unto death so that others might enter into his kingdom and reign with him in glory. Jesus is our better king. Jesus is the perfect shepherd king. And all of these characteristics we see in Christ as our shepherd, the fact of his divine care, his compassion, his ability to provide, and, and his kingly rule, I think we see all of this most clearly and his suffering for us on the cross. Ultimately, we can enjoy Jesus as our divine, compassionate, providing, and kingly shepherd because he was a shepherd who went to the cross on our behalf. And it's there, friends, where I think we can most honestly and assuredly assess and examine our own walk. Are we excited about Jesus only because he can provide for us? Because he he gives me a good and comfortable life? Because he's my insurance plan? Be careful that you're not turning him into a kind of magic genie 
Be careful you're not following him like the crowds were just to get from him good things. Some of us may be amazed and astonished at who he is. But be careful not to confuse that for knowing him and loving him for who he is. Have you repented and put your trust in him as your shepherd, as your suffering shepherd? Some of us may be coming because we're intrigued by what he can offer. We're excited by the following he has. Being amongst the crowds, though, has never been the same thing as knowing him. Coming to him, being in him as our suffering shepherd, as the only one who can forgive our sins and in his death make us right before God, only then can we begin to enjoy him rightly in his kingly and providing role. Friends, as we close this morning, I need to ask you, do you recognize our Lord? Do you know Jesus? I pray you come to recognize Jesus not only as the better and more perfect Moses, the true shepherd of God's sheep, but as Savior, as King, as provider, and as our compassionate God. And you know what the truly amazing thing is? Jesus, as our shepherd, will guide us and actually change us from the inside out. He leads us to see him more and more clearly, to know him as he is better and better. We may be like the disciples on the boat, scared and in the dark, not quite able to make out who this Jesus is, but when we come to him and trust in him as our saving shepherd, he changes things. He gets in the boat with us. He opens our blind eyes to recognize him and see him in all his beauty and to be absolutely captivated by him. He softens our heart and hearts to beat with passion and love for him. We can certainly come to him as we are, but when we come to him, He doesn't leave us as we are. He makes us to recognize him rightly so that we might follow him and love him rightly. Friends, we, I, you, were made to be enchanted and enamored and enravished and excited and enticed by Jesus Christ. Astonished and amazed and awed by Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. So let us come to him, submit to him, know him, believe in him, and be absolutely aghast and amazed by him. Let's pray.